This is the Hidden Why Podcast, episode 1099. This is my interview with Joseph Ledeau, and we're discussing his newest book, The Four Realms of Existence. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Hidden Wife Podcast. Great to have you here with us today. And today I have Joseph Ledoux on the show. Um, fascinating, uh, insightful man. Got lots of um, lots of things to talk about, I'm sure, Joseph. But uh, welcome to the, the Hidden Wife Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Lee. You're the professor of um, neuroscience at New York University. Is that right? He's still That's right. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that explains, you know, a lot of your work, uh, in a nutshell, neuroscience. I mean, there's, there's so much un, under that that we could unpack today. Um, you've also written many books, um, and your newest book that we're going to delve into this morning or today is the four realms of existence, a new theory of being human. Um, you've also got other books, which, um, have, have fascinated me as well. Um, including, uh, the emotional brain, anxious, the deep history of ourselves, so lots of work there to um, uh, under your, your belt there, Joseph. Yeah, um, I don't know how you find time to fill it all in, and you're also you well, part that of keeps, keeps me alive. Writing, writing keeps yeah. me going. <laughs> you're a um, you're in a band as well, is that right? Yep that that's what really keeps me going. <laughs> that's what really keeps you going. The amygdaloids. Talk to me just quickly about that. Like um, we often thinking, you know. Um, you just you focus on your work so much it can consume right. you. Um, often it's nice to have some sort of passion outside that right. to keep that growth and that that variety alive, right? Absolutely. And um, you know, I, in two thousand six, I was playing guitar with a, another professor at NYU, and we kind of started playing some um, cover songs from sixties greats like uh, you know the Rolling Stones, and we played Mother's Little Helper, which has been about benzodiazepines and you know, Jimi Hendrix, Manic Depression, and things like that, and decided, well, you know, my friend Tyler is singing all the songs, and I'm not a very good singer, so I'm going to write songs that I can sing. And so we had a gig, and it was advertised in the paper by um, perhaps the club or something, I don't know, um, and it was advertised as heavy mental, and that became our calling chord. So I started writing all these heavy metal songs, songs about mind and brain and mental disorders. Um, and, we've, you know, we've had, I don't know, five, six, seven albums with the amygdaloids and a bunch independently that I've done all wow. about mind and brain. Wow. So there we have it. That keeps me, that's what really keeps me alive. So you've intertwined your work with your, your music. It does, passion. and it, it's really moved together quite um, synchronistically. Uh, yeah. I'll be invited to give a lecture, I don't know, let's say in Stockholm, and they'll say, can you bring the band? I said, no, but I can bring Colin, my duo partner, and we do acoustic versions of Heavy Mental. It's much easier than having to bring a band. Heavy uh, Mental. I like that idea. I'll have to tune into some of it. Yeah, YouTube channel, Migdaloids YouTube channel. Migdaloids. Migdaloids. There you go, guys. Check that out as well. Uh, Joseph, neuroscience, how long have you been in this practice for? Well, let's say I had two degrees in business um, administration and happened to not like it so much. It was in the late 60s, early 70s. And I took a course that happened to be on, I thought was going to be about uh, human motivation, but it turned out it was about rat brains and memory in psychology. You know, it was a psychology course. And I fell in love with that, threw everything else out the window, applied to graduate school, got in. Uh, actually accepted in one place, uh, and from there I just went on and became a neuroscientist. Back then it didn't matter too much because uh, 
there was no, you know, wasn't a specific field of neuroscience. Uh, and not a lot of research had been done on the brain by that point. So it was kind of like a time you could get in and it didn't matter if you didn't have any background because everybody else was trying to figure it out too. Everyone else was saying too. Yeah, okay. That's a long time then. Studying yeah. the brain. Does that mean that's that what neuroscience is, is the study yep. of the brain? Yep. Neuroscience. Yeah. So talk to us about, um, I guess, the brain and some of the, I guess, because you talk about in the four realms of existence, the separation or the non-separation of, of you know, the body and the, the mind. Right. And you talk about well, so four the, realms of existence. Yeah, so let me run through what the realms are because uh, that, that will kind of set up the, at the stage. So every living thing that has ever lived is a biological organism. It has a biological existence. Right. Now, everything else about us is based on this biological existence. Now, some organisms have a nervous system to aid in the control of all that biological stuff like metabolism and uh, all of the things that the body is doing all of the time. So if you have a nervous system, that allows you to more effectively interact with the environment and to uh, control your your bodily functions in a more efficient way. Um, now, the only organisms that have nervous systems are animals. No other organism, and there are lots of organisms in the world that aren't animals, but only animals have a nervous system, right. and that makes animals unique. Now, there are different kinds of animals, like invertebrates, uh, crabs and lobster and you know bugs and flies and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they are from a completely different evolutionary line that goes back about 630 million years ago before the line that gave rise to the vertebrates diverged from the, that other line. So you've got the invertebrates on one side and the vertebrates on the other side starting about 630 million years ago. Okay. Now eventually, the vertebrates came along. Um, and all, all animals have these have a nervous system, but the vertebrate nervous system is, is um, more elaborate in many ways. Um, it certainly has a, a peripheral and a central component. So many of the, the um, early animals that had nervous systems like jellyfish and so forth, there was no centralization, no brain. There was just a diffuse nerve net, it was called. It so was well, when we talk about the nervous system, can you just explain that in, in some more simple terms about what sure. that is? Sure. The nervous system is the... The, well, the body has many systems. The human body has many systems. Yeah. Um, the circulatory system moves blood throughout your brain. The respiratory system brings in air and allows you to expel it. The digestive system, you know, digest food and so forth. Yeah. The nervous system is kind of a super system where it regulates all of those things. The It has two components. Yeah. The central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord in the human uh, body, the brain, is doing a lot of the, you know, um, big activity, big activity and uh, controlling things in the body. And it, to do that, it has to go, f the information has to go out of the brain and through nerves that will take it to the body. So yeah. if I want to move this finger, a thought that I'm going to move the finger has to go from my brain down my spinal cord to my arm and put, uh, cause my finger to, to twitch like that. Yeah. So... And that's true of what the nervous system does. It uh, passes information from point to point to allow things to happen more efficiently. So there's an input side of the nervous system. For example, I'm looking at you on the screen right now. That's coming into my through my eyes, 
going into my visual system. My visual system is processing that. But uh, the sensory information by itself is meaningless. You have to take sensory information and combine that with memory in order to know what something is. So I'm looking at that bridge right behind you in your background. Um, And, you know, we don't come into the world knowing what a bridge is. You have to learn that through experience or what glasses are or what water is or food or anything like that. Yeah. And it's it's through those experiences that combine sensation and memory that creates a perception. Yeah. And so all of those are processes that are taking place within the nervous system between, you know, for example, the visual areas of the brain and the memory areas of the brain. They're interacting and communicating so that sensations can be meaningful. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how much how far you so, want to go down this road no, as opposed fine, to fine. The... so that that helps us better i mean the benefits of having the nervous system is help us better interact with our environment and therefore right. obviously better for our survival i assume right so the so again we start with the biological realm uh, yeah. and then we add the neurobiological realm and the neurobiological realm takes the the uh, behavioral capacities of the biological realm the visceral capacities and any capacities of the the organism to move and turns those into uh, things that are controlled by the nervous system and makes them more efficient. Um, Now, the nervous system is present in all animals, but different animals have different kinds of nervous systems. So um, if we look at the the vertebrate nervous system, let's take a a fish. A fish has a nervous system that can detect things in the environment, learn about them, respond, and so forth. And that's all fine. But the fish nervous system doesn't have what the human nervous system has, which is the ability to internally represent the external world in terms of a mental model of the situation. So that is where... That's where you're talking about creating that perception, the ability to create perceptions. Yeah, right. Well, it's it's more than it's more than just a perception at that point. It's a, it's becoming a cognition now. So the, we've got the biological realm, which is supplemented by the neurobiological, and some neurobiological organisms have this ability to create these mental models, these internal representations, and that is what the cognitive realm is. Now, the cognitive realm is great by itself, but yeah. in addition, some organisms have the ability to be conscious that they are the organism that is having those cognitive mental models and uh, understanding the world. And that becomes the conscious realm. So those are the four ways that we exist, and they all have different evolutionary histories. But in the human body, they're integrated from the bottom up and from the top down. It's a completely integrated system. So when you talk about cognition, um, what are some ex- examples of animals there that have have that without having the the consciousness? Well, you know, it's it's really hard to talk about animal consciousness because we don't know we what's don't know. inside mm. another animal's head. Um, but what we can say is that we know that all mammals and many birds have these complex abilities to represent the internal represent the external world internally. Now, why is it that only mammals and birds really have that capacity? Mammals, of course, being all animals that, uh, um, you know, like all the animals we interact with, dogs and cats and horses and cows and all that. Um, And why mammals and birds? Well, there's a kind of really fascinating story about that. Um, Mammals and birds, the thing that that ties them together is that they're both warm-blooded. 
Right. All other animals are cold-blooded. So only, only mammals and birds heat themselves internally. You know, like if you see a, um, a snake or something, uh, it, it's got to go out and find the sunlight in order to warm up. Yeah, because um, the they, they, they don't have the heater inside the metabolism. But to make the energy to heat the body like that requires a lot of food. So that means you've got to go hunting for food all the time if you're, you know, an animal that lives in the wild as opposed to somebody who can, you know, go to the grocery yeah. store and buy it. So the animals have to go foraging all the time. And foraging itself burns energy. So it's kind of like a game where you have to make sure you do the right thing when you're foraging. That means you have to understand what time of year it is, what time of day it is, what are you likely to find to eat at those different times of the day and different times of the year. Um how do you separate poison from non-poison and on and on? And so when an animal is going to exert so much energy for the unknown possibility of what they're going to find that day, they have to have the advantage of being able to take a pretty good guess about what the best opportunities will be. And that ability to plan is what cognition is all about. The ability to, to hold something in mind, to create a plan for what you're going to do, what you're going to find, what is the benefit of taking, you know, going a little further and finding, will you find more if you go further? All of that is about being able to make decisions based on plans and predictions uh, and to control your behavior in that way. So does, birds and mammals neuro, can do Neurobiological system help us, um, obviously, with that cognition ability. Um, I mean, you used to talk about, you know, to plan, but also to remember and, and create those memories. I mean, without that cognition, can you still create the memories? And I would assume, you know, maybe right. like fish or something have that naturally in them that they can detect, you know, certain things and remember certain things without right. maybe cognition. So here's the deal. Um, if we take, if we just look at the, the, what we call the mere neurobiological level, let's take a fish, for example, uh, uh-huh. as you just said. So they can um, be conditioned by, you know, in the top, typical Pavlo, Pavlovian way with uh, if they encounter something dangerous in the presence of some stimulus, they can form a Pavlovian response so that every time they see that stimulus, they turn away from it. Or they might um, um, acquire a Pavlovian appetitive response where the stimulus is associated with something that tastes good. So they would move towards that every time they saw it. But these are automatic kind of reflexive actions that are learned. Yes. Also, it's kind of like um, also habits are are like this. You can learn a stimulus response habit um, without any cognition. It's just a a matter of reinforcing a behavior over and over again. Did we need the cognition originally to to create that in humans? Nope. Nope. Oh, in humans. Well, so the, the, we're still in yeah, the, yeah, cognitive, levels, the, the biological realm in fish but and other vertebrates. When yeah. mammals evolved, what came with, with them is the ability to form these stimulus response habits, uh, which are not always bad. I mean, sometimes we think of a habit as a bad thing. You, know, you bite your fingernails and you can't stop or, mm. um, you know, you, you have a... You're drinking too much or you have all kinds of bad habits that that you don't like. But you also can have good habits, things where you develop habits that are useful in your life. And all of these are done automatically without any cognition, without any conscious. You learn, you know, a stimulus is reinforced 
that goes yeah. to the dopamine part of the brain. The, the dopamine solidifies that stimulus response association, and the animal then performs the response automatically. Yeah. Now, on the basis of that, when mammals evolved, they evolved a new part of their brain in what's called the striatum, uh, a part of the brain that does these habits. But it also allows, in the, in the new version that mammals have, to have goal-directed behaviors, behaviors that are based on the value of the thing that is being sought. And that is more of a cognitive kind of response. So mm-hmm. all mammals have that goal-directed behavior, and birds, some birds. Um, and on the basis of that, we then have we develop more elaborate kinds of uh, cortex, which is the layer outside, you know, the wrinkled part of our brain. Mammals developed a more elaborate cortex uh, to go with this goal-directed behavior and to use more complex kinds of uh, cognition, like working memory, where you hold information in mind and you make decisions on the basis about the information you have in mind. And that's where the planning and the uh, uh, predicting and deciding takes place. Mm. So that is a kind of basic mammalian uh, brain. The human brain does all of those same things, the primate brain, including monkeys and and chimps and and the humans. Uh, The primate brain does all of that, but it has a more elaborate kind of working memory where it uh, it can hold much more information, do many things at once rather than just one thing at a time. And that is the beauty of of what happened when, when primates evolved. They evolved a much more complex brain. And is that, is that brain. Sorry, you keep going. Go ahead, go ahead. Is, that, is that consciousness? Like, is that the next level then? Not necessarily. Consciousness, no. you know, what we have to do is we, when we talk about consciousness, we have to talk about that in terms of the human brain and then try to yeah. extrapolate backwards because we don't know really what's going on in another animal's brain. So, for example, let me give you, let's say you, you're watching, let's say, a, a rat in a, in a laboratory experiment, for example. And the rat is, um, in response to a stimulus, is approaching that stimulus and eating it, right? Now, you don't know whether the rat is doing that because it has learned a habit, and so as soon as it sees that stimulus, it goes over and eats it, or because it has formed a mental model and has a goal understanding of that that thing is now a goal, and it makes a decision to go eat that goal because it understands the purpose of that goal. Yeah. It's food. Well, that's where it becomes, I mean, if we had a, let's say, a cake on the bench upstairs, and you walked in and you go, oh, that's, that's sweet, I'm going to move towards that and eat right. it. But yeah. at the same time, there's this consciousness game going on in the head that's thinking about how that's all going to play out. But, but but still, let's leave it at not at that consciousness yet. The, the, okay. The, the the difference you can't tell the difference in the rat that is uh, being goal directed no. uh-huh. and the rat that is performing habitually. They look identical, yeah. and it's only by taking those things apart with very very complex technical experiments. I don't mean in the brain. I mean behaviorally. So researchers at at Cambridge did this um, a number of years ago. They were able to behaviorally separate out goal-directed behavior from uh, habitual behavior. Um, And it all has to do with the ability of the animal to hold information in mind, not necessarily consciously, but to have a kind of internal representation and to use that to guide behavior. Now, let's go to humans. Now, in humans, we can do that. Sorry, can I just ask that that experiment, how do they, or maybe it's too hard to explain, but how do they separate the habitual and the goal? 
it's it's kind of complicated, but let's say I'll give you the, the simple version. So yeah, you um, the if an animal has, let's say the what they did was they did a study where um, the animal was um, let's say pressing a bar to receive a sucrose solution. Okay, they love, rats like sucrose, so they press the bar to get that. Now, um, after some time, let's say four hours after having learned that if you press that bar, you get sucrose, uh, the rat was given an injection of a, uh, an, an, a chemical that makes the rat nauseous. Now, the, as a result of that, the rat will no longer go to that bar and press it to take sucrose the next day. Now, why, why, how does it know that? Because, you know, if we think of, of uh, learning associations, usually that's two things that overlap in time. You know, for a lot, in Pavlovian conditioning, for example, um, the dog hears the bell when the, the meat is in the dog's mouth, and so the dog then salivates the next time it hears the bell yeah. because you've formed an association between those two things. But um, you can also learn that in, a cog- in this cognitive way. And, and so if the, if the nausea, which is the, the stimulus that is um, making the animal not re- um, work for this anymore, uh, if that has happened four hours later, that's a long time for an association over time to be formed. Um, so what they, are, what they are doing is forming an association between the memory of the taste and the nausea in time. So wow. it, it's not about a stimulus in the world. It's about an internal stimulus that is being associated with the nausea, the memory of the taste, the sweet taste. So wow. the rat will no longer go for that, that uh, bar to, to get it. But wow. if the rat has learned a habit, it does not matter if it got sick or not, it will go press the bar. Hmm. So, and that's the way you know, because if the, if the rat presses the bar because of something it learned four hours after tasting the sucrose and still is able to use that memory to form that association and not go to the bar and stay safe that way, then it's a good thing. So that is how you tell the difference. Yes, the habitual can still go back. Yeah, the habitual just go back and do it because they don't have that memory uh, they didn't form that memory that allows it to become uh, uh, a goal-directed mental model. Interesting. That can happen in humans too, right? Oh, absolutely. No, that, that's the whole point, that um, we do this all the time as well. But in us, we know that sometimes we are conscious of what we're doing. Now, So oh. that is the conscious realm. So each of these are you know, it's layers, and you can move through layers. So like in a conversation like this, um, we move, I'm moving through layers where I'm just, you know, I know what I want to say. You're asking me a question. So that sets up, um, what I'm going to tell you about. And I start talking and I no longer think about what I'm going to say. I'm not conscious of what I'm saying. It's just coming out. So I'm running a, a, a non-conscious cognitive conversation. And then all of a sudden you say, well, how does, how does the rat do that? So now I have to think about it and start answering you consciously. And mm-hmm. then once we get past that, now I'm just talking non-consciously again over and over again. It's not like it's, you know, the deep unconscious or anything. Every conscious state is preceded by a pre-conscious cognitive model that is there. And some of those cognitive models cross the consciousness fin- finishing line. And then a situation where all of a sudden you have to stop and think about what to say, 
that again, you know, takes you across the consciousness finish line. You, you say what you have to say. And then I get back into my comfort zone. I just ramble on again about what I know without thinking about it. So yeah. that's that's how the, the conscious and the cognitive realms are constantly interacting. Right. So that, I mean, we're running on autopilot most of the time, right? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So you're driving not, not, down not, the car. Not necessarily consciously. Right. Driving so down saying, the road, yeah, and you know, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, the car swerves, and you pay attention. You, you know, you listen. You're grooving out to the song. You know, listening. You're paying attention to driving at all. But somebody got too close to you, and all of a sudden, now you got to consciously take control and, you know, get the car out of the way. And that's that kicks into gear the cognition yeah. that then reinforces future consciousness right. and autopilot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. There you go, neuroscientists at heart here. Um, <laughs> what what was? I mean, obviously, very passionate about this topic. What drove you to write this particular book? Um, you know, the, so the last book I wrote was the deep history of ourselves, uh, the four billion year story of how we got conscious brains. So that was really about how the human brain evolved. Right. But what I'm trying to do. In, the, in this new book, The Four Realms of Existence, is to not so much understand the way we were, but to understand the way we are. So while there's an evolutionary basis for each of these levels, each of these realms right. of existence, what I want to know is what that does for each human being right now. Not necessarily, I know it's coming from evolution, but it's important to understand what this happened, what's going on right now in each of us, because what um, what the four realms accounts for is every aspect of psychology that you can think of. Everything is packaged into those four realms. So it's a, a, another way to take, you know, very kind of antiquated concepts like the self, uh, which I say is, you know, kind of a bogus thing. It's not really, we don't have a self inside of us that is something different from who we are. Mm. Mm. I have no other me inside of me. That myself is me. Uh, and, but it's not a thing. It's not something that is doing stuff for me. It's just a story I tell about who I am. That's, so the, that, idea that's, of, the, that's the idea of the self. Then there are two kinds of self. One is the narrative self, which I fully subscribe to. It's just the stories we tell ourselves consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, I'm great. I'm shit, whatever lives. it might be. Yeah. Yeah. And the other is more of a kind of um, uh, kind of active, an active self where it's something in you that's doing things, but not you. Yeah. So it's a little weird. And so I think we've got to just throw all of that, uh, that, that what's called um, uh, the deep emergence view of self out because it's, there's no emergent thing inside us that's doing something. We're, we do it ourselves. You know, it's like, oh, I blame myself for doing it. No, there's no other, there's no thing inside you you can blame. It's just you. When they talk about the self, I often think of it as a spiritual sort of matter. Uh -huh. Well, that, uh -huh. that can be too. I mean, you know, spiritual doesn't go too well with neuroscience, but I'm not saying, you know, everybody's uh, free to have their own thoughts. There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of research that tries to integrate philosophy into neuroscience. And yeah. sometimes that's really good when you're starting a project, mm. but then the philosophers think you have to uh, follow all of the things that they concluded from, you know, logic alone. 
And while it might be useful as a starting point, it's not a way to continue science. You've got to, you know, you've got to take the science to what what the results tell you and what you learn from the results. Uh, it doesn't matter what, whether the philosopher says that that's not what I was thinking. It doesn't matter because you just go in a different route. So, yeah. I mean, spiritual, that's everybody, you know, every, people can have that. It has nothing to do with whether I'm spiritual or not. Uh, it's just not something we can learn about through the brain no. very easily. So when you're arguing about the self, um, you're saying that that narrative in the self, you know, our story, yeah. we tell ourselves is, is fair play. Yep. But this idea that there's another me and me doing yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, or like a personality. I mean, yeah, we all have a personality, right? But it's not different. That's There's nothing. The, these are kind of like, you know, there's nothing else concept. there creating that. There's it's just nothing, one system. Right, it's just, yeah. And I think with, you know, with what I tried to do with the four realms is to subsume self and personality and all of the other things that we've had since ancient Greece that are, you know, trying to, you know, we're trying to use stuff that was talked about, uh, you know, thousands of years ago in a new scientific framework um, and get rid of the old stuff and just put it in a more neutral set of terms like biological functions, neurobiological, cognitive and conscious. And there we don't need any of these little extra people inside of us to account for all of that. Right. Yeah. Um, I often talk about happiness and this pursuit of living a meaningful life potentially. With all that you know about neuroscience and your work, how do you how do you think that relates? To happiness? To happiness. Well, you know, happiness is another one of these concepts that is kind of like you know, in a way, it's become kind of um, a social pressure thing. You know, yeah. happiness, happiness culture. That you know, that um, do this and you'll be happy. But some, you know, happiness is a social con concept, and people can have very, um, very meaningful lives, but not always be bubbly and happy all the time. You know, there's a lot of pressure on people to adopt this happiness posture right but i think it's it's much better just to be complacent and be to be satisfied uh rather than to seek happiness yeah. satisfaction well, maybe having a, a satisfied or meaningful life is happiness rather than right. this maybe this other idea that we have of happiness where we should always be in enjoy or pleasure or, <laughs> yeah. or yeah bubbly positive <laughs> right i guess my question to you is how has it helped you understand life and living well you know again i i try to uh myself do what i can to hold back anxiety yeah you know like we're all anxious to some extent and um there's a lot to be anxious about in the world these days and i think you know i used to say you know oh every generation thinks it's the most anxious um and I think that was true for a while, but now we've gotten to a point where I think we literally have earned our rights to say that we are the most anxious people that have ever lived. Uh, with social media, yeah. social media, and and all the the instant gratification and the instant information and the instant everything is instant, instant, instant. There's no time to to rest and and just be who you are. You but know, it's you, also you're this always like being, more, 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 like with. with it seems to get faster and faster because 
as we all want more and desire more and the neighbours have more, we want more and we desire more and we have to work more to get more right. <laughs> on top of the social anxiety. Right, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I just try to, um, you know, for me, I think all emotions are, you know, we t- we, you often hear about animals, you hear, researchers will say that um, we've inherited our emotions from, from our mammalian ancestors. Darwin started that idea. And I think, you know, Darwin um, actually kind of messed things up, I believe, because he was having trouble getting the theory of evolution accepted in Victorian England, where there was a lot of concern where the, you know, he was going to be challenging the, the, the biblical story of creation and so forth. And so Darwin um, was not doing well. You know, his, his first couple of books really were not selling. Nobody liked his ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and his wife was, you know, told him, you know, Charles, you have to stop this because I'm going to go to heaven and you're going to hell. I mean, that's how serious the thoughts were there about religion and evolution, uh, that his his philosophy, his uh, his theories were going to take him to hell. And so he, you know, kept trying to figure a way out. And he, what he came up with was, okay, Victorian England, everyone loves their pets. They, they all had dogs and, you know, those wild and dogs and horses, that, and they viewed them as kind of companions and so forth. And so he said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to present this to the public this way, that animals have human emotion, human-like emotions, which is the complete opposite of what he'd been talking about with evolution. We've, you know, we've evolved our bodies from animals, so our, our body has come in that direction. But when he talked about emotion, he, he talked about, you know, his, his dog uh, feared him um, because it had a, a concept of God, and the dog had a concept of God, and he feared Darwin. So that meant that the dog had fear because he had this concept of God that he and, and we were inheriting all. It was, you know, it was a really kind of wild, crazy wow. stuff that he was trying to do just to make his theory of evolution acceptable. And mm-hmm. once he he put once he said that that animals have human like emotions, fear and love and jealousy and all of those things. Um, the English people accepted it, and he went on to then influence the emergence of psychology in the late 19th century with this idea that um, that the mind is an ambassador, or it's a behavior is an ambassador of the mind. And so you can observe an animal's behavior, and on the basis of their behavior, if it's similar to what a human would do in that situation, then we can assume that that animal has human emotions, human consciousness, just like we do. Um, And then Mm. this became the foundation uh, out of which behaviorism emerged in the early 20th century, eliminating everything about consciousness and subjectivity from animals, from humans, and it was just all about behavior. And we are still struggling with that in the field of psychiatry, where the behaviorist tradition remains that psychiatrists want to use behavioral metrics to know whether the patient is doing better. Insurance companies pay for behavioral metrics that the patient is improving or not improving. Um, But what brings the patient 
to the therapist in the first place is their conscious discomfort, their angst, their, their, their feelings of, of anxiety, their feelings of depression. And no medication that's been developed in a study of a rat in a pharmaceutical lab to change that rat's behavior, for example, a rat freezes less when he has a, when he's given this drug, it's assumed that a person will then become less fearful or anxious when they take the drug. But the drugs are a disaster. They don't really work. Um, how can you imagine that a drug that makes a rat freeze less is actually going to change the content of the human subjective experience? Human subjective experience is something, I think, that can only be worked with in a one-on-one -on -one situation with a therapist. And yeah. that's why I think you know, mindfulness and all of that is, is really a major, oh, major and useful thing. Wow. What a story. Well explained. That makes you um, that makes you think about a lot. So the behavioral mechanisms, you know, that a drug can help change necessarily won't change the, the core root of your consciousness and subjectivity anyway. Right. But, it, you know, you might avoid less and you might be less physiologically aroused with the drug, but you're still going to be subjectively uncomfortable subjectively unhappy subjectively anxious yeah because anxiety is and all emotions are states of mind they're mm. not things that are built into the brain by evolution like darwin said mm. i think they're just i mean they're what what darwin has given us an understanding of are these innate behavior patterns that do help us in the face of danger we freeze in the face of danger right or we run away in danger so that's useful and that's innate but at the same time that is happening separate from the conscious experience that you've had you're having of being in danger that's a separate mm. thing different mm. circuits in the brain one is controlling the behavior one is cognitively constructing the conscious experience the fear itself mm. and because those two those two things happen simultaneously you freeze or you run and you're afraid we said oh uh, we run because we're afraid but that's not the case. No. We run no. because we, we're running because we subcortically, subconsciously detected the danger and ran away from it. We've got that innate pattern, yeah. but that's not what our emotion is. No. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Mate, I've taken up a lot of time. Thank you for coming on. I think right. that would be Thank you um, for having me. A lovely opportunity to do it again if you ever open for it. I would love to send out sure. the invite again. Because um, there's a lot more we could discuss, and I uh, really appreciate you coming on today, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now just quickly, guys, before you uh, hang up, Joseph can be found. Yeah. He's got a website, so joseph-ledo.com. Uh, right. Is that right? Joseph-ledo. Joseph I don't know if it's hyphen dash, dash, but dash hyphen. <laughs> the, okay. Yeah, that, that uh, Joseph dash Ledo. Yeah. Amygdaloids on the YouTube channel. Just type in Amygdaloids YouTube channel and you'll get all the music uh -huh. and videos and everything. Interesting. Yep. And then you've got a you've got an Amazon um, documentary as well. Or is it Amazon? Yes, yeah, so the uh, the documentary is called um, uh, Emotions and Neuroscience. Neuroscience and Emotions, the life mm -hmm. research or life work and, and music of Dr. Joseph Ledoux. And it's on Amazon. I don't, where are you? I think right it's Amazon or YouTube. Uh, it's, no, on it's on Amazon. 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 Yeah. Okay. Cool. But cool. Amazon US and UK. I'm not sure about in uh, Australia. Worldwide. Okay. A lot of our listeners are over there, but um, yeah. in a, in Australia, I'll have to have a look. But I'll stick it in the show notes if I can find it. 
Um, but thanks again, Joseph, for coming on. And guys out there, uh, thanks for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Make sure you reach out to Joseph if you have further questions. I'm sure he'd be open to having a chat. And um, until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon